Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 149th year-end episode of MGG Fast Finance, the podcast that has a Prospero Anno every Anno. MGG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Well, you didn't even want to take a pass at trying to uh, get the Spanish accent right on that, huh? <laughs> I, I think it's more offensive if I do that. Yeah, it's true. Prospero Año. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, happy holidays, James, and all of our listeners. Yeah, our, our second language up here is French, friend, not Spanish. That is true. That is true. I forgot about that. Um, I had to be here looking forward to sharing all sorts of valuable information with you guys. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, it's the end of the year. What's on the agenda? <laughs> all right. This episode, episode 149, major shakeup, segment one, top movers. Whoa. We're going to talk about the cards that have moved the most in price this week. Segment two, <gasps> cards James and I think may rise in price. Segment three, Whoa. our best and worst spec calls of the year. So James and I will run through <laughs> some of the stuff we've seen. We talked about this year, what did well, what didn't do well. We'll uh, pat ourselves on the back for the ones that did and make up excuses for the ones that didn't. Uh, yeah. So, so, well, I think we should have a, a spoiler warning for those that are sensitive to humble brags because the train is rolling into <clears throat> humble brag central today. Choo choo. <laughs> probably just turn the cast off after segment two if that shit bugs you. Yeah, definitely. It's hard. It's it's hard to have those conversations without sounding like a dick. Yeah, like it's just I, you know I don't I don't know how to have to discuss it. But mm-hmm. all right. Well, anyway, in any case, let's start off here. Uh, our first card of the week is Heartstone out of the Premium Deck series. Uh, Slivers, not something you see too often. Uh, like two fifty to five fifty. These are the foils because that whole deck was all foil. Um, I have to imagine this is just sort of an inventory issue. Uh, this is pretty old. Looks like there's nine on TCG player right now. Market price is still 280. I think somebody just bought the last copy at 280 and now the ones that are five bucks are still left. When premium deck series slivers came out, nobody gave a crap. Um, but that's quite some time ago Mm -hmm. and they're pretty hard to find at this point. Um, World Spine Worm, non-foils, 9 to 18. Somebody must have played this again in a deck, right? They showed up someplace. Uh, I couldn't find anything obvious, um, but there was a lot of chatter in our brand new Discord channel mm-hmm. um, amongst pro traders talking about people making moves on this and Gristlebrand and uh, things related. So I would guess that this is a healthy dose of speculation, capitalizing on uh, no recent reprint and um, the fact that supply was relatively low. 
It's a it shows up in a bunch of EDH decks. It's a kind of card that is has serious appeal with casuals because of the sheer monstrosity of what it drops on the table. You're getting like a 15-15 or whatever, and then three five fives, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's it was most used in modern for uh, its combo with Nourishing Shoal, which is you exile a green creature and gain uh, life equal to its mana cost. So you could... Right, the Boreborogomos, Boreborogomos. Yes. Yep. Well, you played it. You played it with. Let me think for a second here. You played it with Grizzlebrand and Nourishing Shoal, and then you would Gorio's Vengeance, Grizzlebrand in the play, draw seven cards. Hopefully, you hit a Shoal and a World Spine Worm. Then pitch Worm with Nourishing Shoal to gain eleven life and draw seven more cards. And then ideally, you could draw your whole deck. Nourishing Shoal was reprinted in Ultimate Masters, so this might be a well. The other half of the combo is now dirt cheap, so the older Mythic version that didn't get printed. Uh, you know, we're going to push some pressure on it. But the market price is over $13. Someone paid $13.39 for one of these cards. So, yep. fair enough. Something. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't love specs that are hin- that hinge on one fringe deck, you know, coming to the forefront just because pieces of it are cheap. But that doesn't mean it's kind of, again, the kind of play where you want to be relatively shallow, get in, get out while they're, while the iron is hot and then move right along. Yes. Yep. Uh, what's after that? Uh, so next on the list this week, we have Eye of Singularity from Visions. Uh, I'm trying to recall whether this is a reserve list card. Eye of In theory, it, Singularity from Visions. In theory, it went from $2 to $4, so not the kind of thing that really matters much unless the buy lists catch up, and it's pretty unlikely you have a pile of them anyway. So, And uh, yes, it was reserve list, so that's pretty much your answer right there. Yeah. Uh, seemed to ring a bell as like one of those things I've seen swimming around at the bottom of nasty yeah. barrels. Uh, uh, Ristic Tutor foils from Prophecy, moving from $8 to $18. Um, how popular is this card on EDH? <laughs> it might... Is it the... Th- seventh most popular blue card it is real popular uh risk study comes fourth. fourth most popular blue card in the format no but this is ristic tutor oh uh yeah you're right i read that wrong this is the black one Ooh. this is only in 421 decks so i don't love this this reeks to me more of the same thing we've been seeing throughout most of this year which is people targeting um the first five years of foils or so um and basically people going around and just targeting low supply and snapping up opportunistic copies um again you're not gonna you're not gonna be want to be sitting on a pile of rustic tutor foils because you're gonna have trouble uh yeah i agree it's a cool card sort of but it's i wouldn't bother I, i i don't like this i would be selling these immediately if i had any i don't think it's gonna see enough play um ever it's just not good enough you can get 650 cash 845 credit from card kingdom on them so that's a far shot from the 18 dollar ask yeah i'd take it honestly uh following that is probe from invasion not taxing probe just probe foils three to seven probe was a three minus sorcery with a black kicker you could draw three then discard two and then if you paid the kicker you could make your opponent discard two um 
the other than just an old invasion foil, which I'm pretty sure this is like, is it played in popper? Have you heard of this in popper before? I, I haven't, but it doesn't seem crazy to me that it would be. You know what? I'm looking at this and I'm, I'm remembering it's been like mm, 10 days since we recorded. So, but I'm remembering that the last several weeks we have seen so many of these like invasion and Mercadian masks foils invasion specifically getting bought. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, and now I'm looking at the rest of the list a little closer. We have this, we have coalition victory. We have, um, we'll absorb but That would make sense. I don't know. I don't think it really means anything. We should just move on. <laughs> so the world spine worm foils also popped from in theory, 13 to 30. That one's likely to be a little more sticky because without a reprint foils can't replenish anywhere nearly as easily as the non foils can. I have non foils in a spec box at 90 cents. So that's going to be nice. Of the world's fine worm? Yeah. That is pretty snazzy. I, I mean, they've been sitting there for a while. Like I'm talking four, maybe five years, right? But yes. Yeah. Still, t- 10 or 20 times returns <laughs> work out just fine on that time horizon. Oh, yeah. No kidding. I have I had several. I don't know if I sold them all at eight or nine when it jumped the first time that that got good or not. But I'm glad I held on to them. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm deep on it, um, but could buy a box of something else. The problem is it uh, felt like the type of card they could print Commander six times. Yep, that's true. Foils were almost always the, the better bet, and I don't think I own any of those, so it uh, must be from my my amateur days. <clears throat> the Domineering Will from Commander 2014, uh, $1 to $3. Uh, Commander... The buy list moves on that. That's not going to get anybody too excited. No, no, this is another. Oh, well, that's it doesn't matter to anyone, but people who own a store, maybe. Um, Coalition Victory, Out of Invasion, Foils, 5 to 15. But Coalition Victory doesn't actually work in that format. Or is, is, is it banned? What is it? It's banned in EDH. That's what it is. Um, which is just you win the game if you have all the colors and all the lands, blah, blah, blah. But it's illegal in EDH, so this is just an old foil um, from Invasion. It was in Time Spiral 2, uh, so you can get foils there that are almost identical. Just, you know, you, if you can get the 15 bucks for them, I take it. Um, other than that, it's not really going to be useful anywhere. The next one has a... It's not interesting in EDH, so they're not going to unban it. Yeah. The next one has a smidgen of real demand. Wakestone Gargoyle, Dissension Foils, going from $2 to 5 That's an Arcady Saboth card, um, but very narrow usage. So again, not something that you want to be thinking too hard about. Sanity Grinding from Eventide, non-foils from 3 to $9. Is somebody fooling around with Sanity Grinding? That would be news to me, but it's possible. I mean, it's a mill card, so those are always kind of popular. It's old. There's not a lot out there. Um, market price I mean, is still under three bucks, but the cheapest English copy is ten. However, Card Kingdom's uh, offering four fifty cash, five eighty five uh, credit on non foils. Hmm. Makes me wonder if there are some of those sitting around somewhere I should be paying attention to. Uh, Corbin was running on his TCG player slash YouTube. Uh, mining modern series he was running the new version of the modern mill deck um, that looks like it may generate some specs um, if it uh, catches people's attention because um, mission briefing has really made archive trap significantly better which has dramatically increased the velocity of that deck 
But again, it doesn't run sanity grinding because it doesn't need to. Interesting. All right, so moving right along, hmm. Bant Panorama foils from Shards of Alara. Shares a name with my daughter, so it's obviously the coolest spec. Dollar fifty to six dollars, three hundred plus percent gain. Do play people play panoramas in EDH much? Mm, this is in just about six thousand decks, so sort of. I think it's a budget option for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you sack it, search your library for basic planes, forest, or island. So it fixes, but slowly and expensively. But again, if you're trying to play three color deck and you're not, you know. You can't just throw fetches and shocks and duels at it. You got to do something. I think part of the thing um, here is that the panoramas, I can't recall the last time they got a foil reprint. I know we saw this in uh, a commander deck or two. Yes, this is the only foil. Right. So it's been in commander anthology and commander 2013. So it, yeah, there's only one series of foils. So no huge surprise. Right. Um, all right. This card, the next card actually uh, sparked a frustrating but interesting conversation on Twitter this week. Yeah, uh, finishing out this week with Absorb, um, reprinted in Standard for the first time since Invasion. Uh, Both foils and non-foils have gone bananas. Uh, Let's see, are there any Absorb on PCG Player under $20? There there are zero foils. No, that's not what I wanted. Um, Come on. Zero foils. uh, $18.28. Is the cheapest invasion copy of this card right now. Um, and like I said, no foils at all. So this is a pretty potent counter spell. Uh, a lot of people are kind of flipping out about it. And it's not like busted. It's not going to ruin standard entirely, but it is a very efficient counter spell. That through life matters a lot in the same way that the gap between like brain geyser and Sphinx's revelation was the five or six life you gained when you cast it. The gap between cancel and absorb uh, is huge because that three life sort of negates an entire attack from a creature type of thing, buys you a lot more time than it feels like. Uh, Now, obviously, absorb is rare in the upcoming Ravnica set. It's not going to be $20. Um, There's going to be a lot of copies out there. People are going to be looking for it. You have the old invasion ones to backfill a little bit. I do expect it, you know, like most of the utility rares that we see in standard will probably float between three and eight, depending on um, how popular it is. Uh, you might push over 10 if it really starts to show up in modern as well, because now absorb wasn't legal in modern prior to this. Um, so it, it'll be curious to see where all of this settles. I, I would 100% sell copies at $20 or even $15 if I get it because the odds that it's going to be cheaper than that are very low. Uh, if you have invasion foils, you might want to hang on to those at the moment unless you can get a really stupid number for them just to kind of see where things go. Um you know, I would not sell my foils for 30. I'll tell you that much. I, I managed when I finally got to a computer and looked some up, they were pretty much gone. Most places I did manage to find a set of Japanese foils from invasion uh, for 50 a piece. So 200 total, which I was pretty pleased about because the number of Japanese foil invasion cards is probably <laughs> if I bought a play set of them, that's like 10%. <laughs> I would imagine. So my Yeah. Yeah, the, the 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 interesting follow up will be whether you can manage to unload that to a standard player that has pockets deep enough. My, to care. my hope is that it starts seeing enough play in modern that somebody there will want it. Mm, that one's more Maybe. sketchy. 
the um, I can see it ending episode one or a two of in the deck because in both standard and modern, this is a tool for Teferi, right? Like this is just the thing that buys you time to do your Teferi thing. Um, Teferi untapping the lands can set up being able to use Absorb on your opponent's turn, which is just puts them further and further behind if they're on some kind of aggro plan or shuts them down completely if they're trying to combo off or Tron's trying to drop something big on the board. It can... It's not inconceivable that this fi- finds some minor role in modern. Being a three mana counter spell with a lot of other options available, however, is leaves me dubious. In standard, however, um, you know, obviously the card's going to see play, and so much for them not giving to fairy new tools, um, which they kind of insinuated they were thinking about um, when people were querying that in the fall. The conversation I ended up having on Twitter was was revolving around the fact that. Somebody was very angry, and I'm sure that their voice was echoed at other people's desks and devices, that the Absorb copies from Invasion were suddenly so expensive. Like, how dare they be $28 or whatever the last man standing price was on TCG after the whole thing Mm. was revealed. And again, this became an opportunity for attempting to provide illumination to people about the whole nature of relative utility and you know, shifts in the demand curve that will occur and how there are literally zero losers in a situation where we're talking about a completely, a complete non-necessity, a discretionary um, card game that, you know, where the money being put into it is whatever you can afford to spend that you think is worth it. And especially in a situation where the invasion copies provide no barrier to entry whatsoever because there's nothing forcing anybody to use the old, slightly sexier copies than the new ones that are about to get reprinted and will end up yeah. being 2 or $3. Anybody that's willing to spend 10 15 25 30 and mark my words, the, the even the invasion copies are going to get pushed down to 12 to 14 at least, if not lower, because these are going to start sneaking back out of binders and getting buy-listed and you're going to see people undercutting each other 50 cents at a time until the market fills up with plenty of these. Invasion was not a super low-run set, and while Japanese Invasion foils may be hard to find, Invasion copies of Absorb are sitting in binders. I mean, I know I'm going to be able to go into my personal collection and yank out a few copies. Um, So A, I would expect it to backfill. B, nobody needs the old copies. And C, there was an an insinuation on Twitter that (laughs) TCG should make it illegal for A, people to buy multiple copies of something. Uh, in a game where you need four copies of things frequently, this whole thing becomes very nebulous indeed. Um, do you then take sideboard cards that are only ever played as one of and say you can only buy one at a time? Uh, the other half of this is um, saying that people should not be able to post, like, like there should be some limit on what price you can post on something. All of which just boggles the mind, right? Like, this is a lot of our listeners live in the United States of America, even those that don't, those of us in Canada and many countries in Europe and abroad all live in relatively free markets. Um, buyers and sellers need to be able to jostle in the marketplace, and the market will sort out what the thing is worth, is the core point. No matter what price they point posted at and keep in mind that these prices are not even necessarily what was posted in the aftermath it's not the guy that bought 
something for $3, reposting it at 30 and being the only person around. It's probably the person that had it already just as a placeholder. And they're the last person standing after the rest of the uh, page that sold out. Guy does post it at 10 or 20 times what it was worth yesterday. He's only wrong if nobody buys it. If somebody pays, then that is in fact the new price for the object um, until nobody buys it at that price again. And the price slides back down and down and down and down until the market finds equilibrium, which it will. I, I, you know, I just, I can't take anyone seriously who's saying that they should implement buy restrictions or price restrictions. Like, I, I don't know. I know you love wading into those conversations on Twitter, but I don't even bother. It's just so, so disconnected from reality and poorly considered that I consider it worth the time or effort. The thing is that, I mean, this individual was a content creator, somebody with like closing in on a thousand followers. So was it? If, you, if you don't, yeah, if you don't, if you don't respond to that kind of discussion and attempt to provide useful information, then, you know, another crop of people absorb it and internalize it. And you end up having you the know. same fight with, with the de- devotees you know down me. the road. Oh, I'm not going to say it on cast and call the guy out. But. He deserves to be. So I'll, th- I'll throw you the. Whatever. Okay. I'll, I'll throw you the link on Twitter. I'm not trying to start some kind of permanent beef. I am. I don't have the, enough enemies right. in this in this sphere yet. I need to generate more. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So there was a series of 15% off coupons on eBay this week leading into the fourth quarter of 2018, which may have disrupted some of our cards to watch. Uh, a lot of stuff got bought in the last four or five days. So you may have tr- more trouble than you did would have uh, when I first made this list. At the start of the holidays, tracking some of these down, but I'm going to list them anyway because there are still sources. Um, My first uh, two picks of the week, I'll blow through it pretty quick because we got a lot of humble bragging to do. Uh, Blooming Marsh and Spire Bluff Canal foils. Uh, You can still find both in and around 13 to 17-ish, depending on where you're looking. Um, Combine it with one of these coupons and you get down into the 12 to 14 range. You're doing very well indeed, because I think both have a very strong potential to hit 25 or 30 before they ever see a reprint. Um, Blooming Marsh in particular was one of the top 10 selling cards on TCGplayer.com in 2018. Um, Sees modern play, EDH play. It's got a steep ladder on the foils and a low supply. Spire Bluff Canal is not much different. I think both are are shoe-ins. I've been buying both for a few months I mean, now. I think that's that's great. I used to love lands as a spec option. The market's changed enough that I, I don't do it nearly as much as I used to. But uh, foil fast lands are really well positioned in general, I think. Um, you know, they do see play in modern and... You know, not quite as often um, as they did back when they were first printed in Scars and Mirrodin. Um, there's a couple more options now, so they don't show up quite as much as they could. But that said, they're still very well positioned. You know, they haven't reprinted the Scars ones yet, right? So these ones we can assume are also on probably a pretty long trajectory before we see more copies. I, I think both are a great choice. I mean, if you're sitting on back leave cliffs, sell them and buy some of these foils and you'll be rolling right along. Yeah, really. I mean, your your foil scars, fast lands are going to appreciate slower than these will. Yeah, I mean, even non-foil black leaf cliffs. I mean, as you said, hasn't seen a reprint, but is due for one and could easily set, 
post up in some kind of supplementary set in the near future. So mm-hmm. not something I want to be sitting on. Um, let me finish up my list here. and we'll d- dive into yours. The Damnation Invocation. This is the one that has the really sick Bolas art. Um, ladder is steep. Art is great. Inventory is low. You can grab one on sale with one of these coupons if you next time you see one. Um, you can get them in and around $110. I think it's a future $150 plus card. So not massive gains, but not. it's the kind of card you can slip into an EDH deck, have some fun with it for six months, and check back in on the price and be pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I don't disagree with that either. Also sounds good. Um, you can also look at them in Europe. I think I was picking them up there late summer in the 80 to $85 US range. So already reasonably well positioned on the small handful I have. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a tough buy in for a lot of people. But, um, you know, the absolute value returns are always appreciated on those large ticket items. Yeah, it's worth yeah worth extrapolating on that point since we haven't talked about it in a while. Um, the concept being that 400% returns on 30 cents still just doesn't give you enough to buy dinner. But 30% returns on $1,000 is the start of a, you know, picks up one of your two flights for a vacation. So percentages are not everything. You also need to compare the raw returns to your hourly rate um, and to your other available options, both for investment and how you spend your time to figure out what's going to work for you best. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, all right. My first pick of the week is, uh, get rock monster. I'm sure I've talked about this before. I don't remember when the last time it came up, but I still like it. Um, Lord Windgrace was another very popular commander this week on EDA Trek. He's been very popular there for a while. Um, foils floating around $17 now. Um, so the pre-release, so he's, foils are 17 pack foils are 17. I like it up to 30 to 35, maybe even more than that. The pre-release copies are already $30. So if you want a pre-release foil of Get Rog Monster, you're, you're spending like 27 or 28 minimum. And it goes up from there quickly. The supply on the pack foils is real low. Uh, like I said, you're paying $17, maybe $18 for them. Really popular, going to continue to be really popular in all any sort of land matters EDH deck. If it's, he's not the general, he's going to be in the 99. Uh, who knows when we'll see him again. And if we do, it feels like a good commander product card. Uh, I don't think you can miss on these. And these tend to be, as we'll see, some of the better types of returns that I talk about on the cast. So I'm 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 liking this guy. I can get with that. Cool. What's your next one? Uh, finish off the week with In Garrick's Wake. Do you know what this card does, James? Yep. I have, pr- I, I think the thing, the reason I know is because I own promo copies and I think that's the thing that holds this one back. The promo copies are a bit of a bummer. Um, so in Garrick's Wake is nine mana. It is a better Plague Wind uh, for all of you longtime players. It destroys all creatures you don't control, which is the Plague Wind part, and all Planeswalkers you don't control, which is the better than uh, Plague Wind part. So nine mana is pretty pricey, uh, <clears throat> but you get to wipe everyone's essentially permanence but your own uh, and then just kill everyone that turn ideally um this is in twelve thousand dda truck decks you can get pack foils for two dollars or less right now uh and there are 16 near mint pack foil copies on tcg player so that's twelve thousand decks and the foils are two bucks now the problem here is that the promo uh is also out there 
And the promo is about a dollar, a dollar to two dollars. And there are a good bit more. Um, not like there aren't 2000, but there is a guy with the 77 of them at five dollars. Uh, and probably like 60 of them cheaper than that. You could also make the argument that the promo art is better. I, if I had to choose between them, I would probably pick that one. Um, but that's subjective. But even with the pre-release versions available relatively cheaply, uh, and with a hefty supply, you're still talking about the pack original pack foils being in very low supply. And some people really value that. Um, so I think that even from this position, the pack foils can hit six, eight or 10 bucks simply by virtue of being the original foil. I mean, M15 was quite a while ago now and was not terribly popular. If I recall correctly, I mean, it was a summer set. So, just tossing it out there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the promos are the big hindrance here. I definitely have some of these sitting around, and I have a feeling I could buy less than profitably already um, because I think I picked them up in these, like, weird little promo packs of, like, unwanted promos that were sitting around the local LGS for, like, 2 or $3. You got, like, 10 of these, like, foil promos that were just not in, of great popularity. And, again, this is the kind of, like, thing where... You get in at 50 cents to a dollar, you hold for five, four or five years, and you buy listed as part of a larger order for three, four or five dollars, and you're happy mm-hmm. to get out. Yeah. So we'll see. Maybe uh, we'll see if I'm talking about it one year from today. <laughs> All right. We'll uh, check back in on that one a little further right. down the road. So now the part of the episode you all came for, um, segment three, our best and worst spec calls. Uh, what do you think? Should we just start with the worst ones? Start with the best ones? How do you want to do this? Maybe we should start with a bit of an overview for the year. Okay. That sounds um, like something what, you would enjoy talking about. <laughs> what do you think defined MGG Finance for 2018? We did. <laughs> well, I like to think we contributed. Oh, man. Um, All right. So I have to stop and think about this because the years start to blur together. Uh, what defined it this year? I have so much trouble separating what was this year and what was other years. What do you think? Let me let me sidestep. I'll come back to that. What do you? Th- what was your best spec this year? Personally, not necessarily one we called on cast. Um. Well, of course. Okay, so according to my sheet here. It was Myojin of Scene wins, uh, foils out of Champion of Kamigawa. Uh, it was, I recommended you guys pick the foils up at about $2 or so. And I said they could hit 10. They are out of stock at 20 right now. So that was a pretty good uh, bump on that part. So just a random EDH card. Um, I mean, if you look through my list, it's mostly EDH cards. Uh, with a couple other odds and ends tossed in there. So, I mean, you know, that was to be expected, I guess. I don't really think of EDH as having been the narrative of 2018, though. I mean, I think it's fair to say that our most common theme is focusing on modern and EDH staples, especially ones that cross over between both, because 
we've advanced the thesis for some time now that the that's where you're going to find the greatest profits is the it's the strongest overall demand profile at least in north america um one of the major reasons why we can continue to source things from europe as early as as recently as this morning for significantly less than they are in the u.s is because of the differences in the demand for edh staples in particular um in the discord channel for mtg price which if you are an mtg price pro trader you should certainly ping us to get uh hooked up with your invite um the European members are frequently mystified by the movement of EDH cards because they just don't see that demand manifest on the continent. Hmm. That's kind of funny. So, so, I mean, a lot of MTG finance personalities have different focuses. Some people focus more on standard, some more on modern. Jason is like an EDH specialist. Um, I think it's good to have a well-rounded view and an understanding of which uh, formats uh, boast the greatest global demand profile and where regional differences apply if you really want to get the best bang for your buck over a period of time. I, I agree with that, yeah. So, I mean, I think in terms of specifics for the year, I would advance the following, and you let me okay. know what you think. Um, I think this was a big year for premium magic product. For as much as up as much uproar as it generated on social media, products like the San Diego Comic Con 2018 Planeswalkers by Therese Nielsen, the Mythic Edition released in uh, mid fall 2018, and the um, surprise uh, end of year announcement around Ultimate Masters and the massive sales success uh, uh, story that unfolded from that, all represent that despite the viewpoints of many, 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 war, far, far too many content creators on YouTube, um, the, the market for expensive magic is deep. It's not the majority of players, and it will inevitably uh, lead to feel-bad moments when those players feel like they can't participate in all aspects of the game. But <clears throat> as we've argued many times, there have always been formats that are more or less accessible that's kind of the beauty of the game is that it supports multiple formats with multiple price points and there is no denying that all three of those aforementioned sets a were runaway success stories and b uh i mean sales wise not operationally operationally they were all a mess um comic-con stuff has limited supply overseas which leads to you know opportunities to sell through over there Mythic Edition was an e-commerce nightmare, um, only that had to be assuaged through the sending out of box toppers, um, which I don't think anybody really complained too much about in the end. (laughs) Um, And then Ultimate Masters, I just talked to, I went into a dealer, uh, a vendor in a small town in Ohio the other day as we were traveling and asked if they had any Ultimate Masters, just going to grab a couple packs to open in the car. And the guy had none because he was one of those small-ish stores that you hear about that was caught off guard um, and didn't have the capital to order any. And they had to sit that one out completely because of, you know, the how long Wizards waited to alert the vendor network that that product was coming down the pipeline. So operationally, Wizards has some work to do. But in terms of product design, those things were tremendous successes and made MTG Finance a lot of money this year. Um I managed to pick up my last 
well, nine copies of Mythic Edition from the GPs in France and the UK, uh, held a few back over in Europe to sell through over there because the prices are even better. Um, but prices are holding steady on Mythic Edition um, over here. So that that's looking like almost a double up on a few thousand dollars um, on that set alone. 2018 Planeswalker sets, people that got them at San Diego Comic-Con or managed to get them through the online sale or happened to be in Toronto and bought them at Fan Expo all had opportunities to get in near 100 and flip them at two to 300 US. So that's pretty amazing. And then Ultimate Masters, having opened six boxes in the last week and making out like a bandit, while you're still subject to variance, there is no denying that the value of that set has been unprecedented. Yeah, the, and I guess... Uh, it does start to bleed together, but the the premium product being the a major story within finance this year, I think, is right on the money. Um, they you know they started pushing the envelope with invent with the expeditions, and then they pulled back on the next set and then reintroduced them. Blah blah blah. But this year they went hard with them. Um, they really tried to put as much product out there for whales as possible, uh, and it did really well. And despite all of the hand wringing in social media, um, that product sold through uh, and has proven popular and people enjoy it. Almost to the point where I'm beginning to wonder if there's going to be some uh, fatigue with that type of product. You know, before when the inventions came out, that was really cool. There was nothing like it, and there wasn't a lot. There wasn't really anything else like it. But now you've got, I think, uh, now this year you had both the Mythic Edition and the Box Toppers, which are both very similar to the point where I get them confused. Like, if I'm not, like, I have to stop and really think about what separates them. Um and I'm wondering if you're going to start to see a little bit of fatigue among the customer base because now it's like, oh, there are so many of these things and I can get so many different cards and all of these special borders that um, I wonder if we're going to see the um, the potential for price increases and the overall demand for any particular promo is dropping because there's just so many options now. I think fatigue is possible, but... I am uh, emboldened by the fact that they managed to release Mythic Edition and Ultimate Masters and the Planeswalker set all within a four or five month period and all of them found a market space. Um, And I'm not actually that surprised because if you, you know, I have a broader viewpoint because I deal with a lot of other Hasbro brands. So for instance, I'm playing a lot of D&D recently and D&D is really um, in an ascendant uh, mode on premium products as well. Like they have, there's like the three books if you play D&D that you need to have. You, the first three books you get are the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual. And that gives you the stuff you're going to fight, how to build your character, and how to run the game. And they put out a premium version of that for basically double or triple the price, depending on where you're you're buying it, um, with just basically fancier covers and a nice slipcase. And now there's a... <laughs> There's a guy, one of the actors from the original Scream movie is apparently yet another Hollywood type that plays D&D and has started a a gaming company where they're licensing from Wizards of the Coast to repackage singular adventures as these $500 gift boxes. So singular adventure is usually bought in like a $30 or $40 book off Amazon. So for instance, uh, 
the Dungeon of the Mad Mage was the uh, Undermountain. Dungeon of the Mad Mage is the one that came out last month or whatever. And they're repackaging those as these massive premium products. We've also seen um, Hasbro be caught off guard over the last five years or so by third-party Transformers getting uh, produced by must be 10 or 15 different companies in Asia now who basically just create an Optimus Prime looking figure without ever calling it Optimus Prime. They'll call it like Maximus Solution or something. And but everybody wink, wink, nudge, nudge, knows exactly what it is. And those have moved millions of dollars of product in the hobby industry. We have Sideshow Collectibles was at the forefront of premium uh, collectibles products, especially for things like Marvel and superheroes and so forth. G.I. Joe figures that sold for $200, $300 on their site. Um, Ashley Wood 3A Collectibles has been doing super high-end toys, collectibles, statues, etc. for years and has picked up a bunch of key licenses. There's a lot of evidence to support that the trend line is for increasing quantities of premium product and that the market, economic downturns potentially forthcoming, notwithstanding, can absorb this product, especially in times of uh, where times are not thin on the pocketbook. I, I I respect that, I guess. Uh, and I, I would have to defer to, you know, more experience with a variety of um, verticals of Hasbro product. I do, I guess I would, I, I wonder if you can look at inventions, and I haven't sat down and crunched the numbers, but I wonder if you can look at the price movement on inventions over the first six months or a year and see how they reacted and then start comparing that to the various other premium products that have been released and see if they moved as much. But I don't know for sure without having crunched it. I respect that there's, I mean, there's a lot of money and a lot of players out there. So there's certainly the possibility to absorb it all. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the other interesting projects that Hasbro ran was this like premium Star Wars project around the Jabba skiff that you may have heard of. I think it was last year, um, which they still haven't delivered on. It was basically like an in, uh, internally run Kickstarter for a big Star Wars Star Wars toy. That's a few hundred dollars. And the mo- the reason that model is emerging still in the wake of the success of things like Indiegogo and Kickstarter and Patreon and whatever is that or the reason for why it is fresh and why they missed it before was because it doesn't fit well. Super high-end products don't fit well into <clears throat> retail strategy at places like Toys R Us, Walmart, Target, etc. The thing in those stores is they want to churn volume off the shelves constantly. They want to sell out a shelf, restock it, sell out a shelf, restock it. And that doesn't really work well for, for $500 items because they're not impulse purchases and they don't match the broader demographic of those stores. And so if you're used to servicing retail channels where the buyer's feedback is constantly, we want more $20 price points, we want more $30 price points, we want more $10 price points, it's not, you're not going to get feedback from Walmart saying, put a $15,000 thing on my shelf because they can't sell it consistently enough to justify the shelf space. Those stores are all about like dollars sold per shelf per hour, per minute, per week, per day. And this is not that model. What this does is instead of trying to put 20 of something on a shelf where the town can only support the sale of two to three, four units or something over the relevant period of time, by move shifting it onto the internet and cutting out the middleman, you're able to A, capture more margin on the overall project. 
because you're not pay- <clears throat> you're not <clears throat> selling at wholesale price, you're selling at retail price, which is not something that manufacturers um, always have the opportunity to do. And you can leverage social media and the hype engines um, of the modern marketing world to spread the word amongst a community that might only be 10, 15, 20,000 people deep, but all of which can afford that product. And you can get them to gather on the singular web page that you create and sell out something like Jabba's Skiff or Mythic Edition or whatever and have it be a major success in a niche. Um, that model, I think, is makes so much sense in the modern era that we're only going to see more of it this year. And in fact, I have a prediction about specifically about masterpieces. Um, the commonality, as you said, between Mythic Edition and the box toppers is that they are basically full art. And we've talked briefly in the past about how that style, uh, it, they would be wise to harmonize on that style for those premium masterpiece style cards moving forward so that decks um, can be made all to look more or less the same. The further they push that, giving us more and more different cards that can make up a full deck that all has that full art bleed to the edge, the more popular they are all likely to be as a whole. And so I think one of the targets for the next couple of years is that they will circle back on lands. They will circle back on shock lands and fetch lands and give us the full art bleed versions. And because of that, I wouldn't want to be sitting on my expeditions for too much longer. <sighs> you're, yeah, you're, you're, uh, you're correct about the, the distribution models. I, 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 I appreciate the comments about the distribution models and how that changes the dynamic. Um, because in a small town, you can't sell through enough mythic editions, what have you. Um, so I, I guess, I guess I don't, I don't have a way to, I don't have a way to, to argue with any of this, I think it's all very good information. Um, I, I would like, for what it's worth, I would like the market to continue to be able to uh, appreciate and 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 absorb these products. One because they're cool, and two because they op- they represent great opportunities for people like us um, that you know who really pay attention, who can be there the minute stuff is available for sale and try and capitalize on that. Um. But and I this is definitely this is definitely not going to be the last time we talk about this, uh, possibly even today. You know, this is certainly going to be an ongoing narrative for Wizards and Magic in general is how much they can push this. And I wonder if we're going to see it even more so, right? If they're really going to see how hard they can go. Like, remember the Comic Con All Black Planeswalkers? I wonder if they'll do like gold and charge you two grand for a set of five or something like, I'd be curious to see how hard they want to go at this. Um, or even like <laughs> solid gold cards type of thing that, you know, technically, you know, wouldn't actually be legal, but maybe someone will buy them. I don't know. It'll be fun to see how, uh, how high wizards it's, will raise a bar on all of this. It's not impossible to do a gold leaf card. That would be legal. A gold leaf lightning bolt. Like say <clears throat> magic essentials or something or magic classics. And it's like lightning bolt, counter spell, dark ritual, something, something. And they're all in gold leaf and they were, it's a thousand dollars a set that would sell out. Mm-hmm. That'd be pretty cool. If they, if they, if they tie, if they tied it to the market value of gold or something <laughs> as the added angle, <clears throat> I, that would sell. 
Um, so yeah, I, I too am curious how far they will choose to push that envelope. Um, at a certain point, it gets kind of gauche, but the it will not surprise me to see additional projects appear. And my first prediction is still that we get Mythic Edition Part 2. There is still that series of Planeswalker art floating around that never got used anywhere that looks like it would line up with, say, Jace the Mind Sculptor leading Mythic Edition Part 2 sometime this winter or spring. So I'm curious to see whether that actually unfolds or not. Um, I think the other theme that I think is worth pointing out this a little more subtle is the absence of uh, a given format in the market, and that's Legacy. Legacy does not really move cards anymore. If a card is played uh, heavily in Legacy and happens to also be good in Modern, then that certainly can contribute. If a Legacy card shows up for the first time in Foil, um, you know that can still drive some demand on that specific unique opportunity for the format. But you don't really, we don't spend a lot of time, and nobody really should be worrying about shifts in the Legacy metagame and and what that does to card prices right? yeah legacy just doesn't matter really at all i mean leovold jumped in price but that was three years ago two years ago well yeah now leovold with the reprinting if legacy was a big deal if this was 2014 or 2015 leovold would not be a seven eight nine ten dollar mythic right now in ultimate masters the demand profile is not there for that card because it's banned in edh yeah right? uh if it was not if it was not banned in EDH, then it would be a totally different story. That would be one of the better mythics in the set. But when it's when you and and that I think right there is an excellent case study. Like a card that we know was very popular in EDH, then got banned, is only really playable in this other format, and the card's price is very weak. Yeah, and I, I think he's a great example to look at and say, uh, okay, well, when this was printed, Legacy reacted strongly and his price went bananas. Uh, but then what happened after? When was the last time you've seen a card since then do that in Legacy? Uh, it rarely ever happens. Now, uh, I can't think of a card that's done it since Leobold. And I'm sure, you know, people will make a point that this has moved or that's moved um, in, the, in, in the ensuing period. But nothing like that. Nothing like it used to be. I mean, I used to look at Legacy the way that I looked at modern three years ago. So like you'd keep an eye on what mo was going to happen, you know, legacy decks that were up and coming and you'd get a whiff of this cool new deck and you'd be scrambling to go find cards that had jumped in price or to get a hold of them before they jumped in price. And I think where it became most evident to me, and it's been like this for a while, this isn't really a 2018 thing, but I remember having big boxes of like bulk rares and every several weeks, uh, something would happen. I'd have to go back to the box to dig through looking for stuff. And for a while, I basically always flipped over the modern border cards. I wasn't interested. There was just nothing modern border that was really doing all that much. But the old border stuff is where the money was. That's where things kept jumping and things were moving and, um, you know, what drew my attention. And then it shifted. And I don't remember exactly when it happened, but now I don't even look at the old border cards when I look through like my bulk box because, and these are all cards that I've thumbed over before. Um, it's because I know none of those move. Like very, very rarely are my bulk rares from pre-modern uh, changing in price. Not enough to, to make it worth going looking for them, but the modern stuff, I stop and look closer at because there's so many modern border cards that have adjusted um, and they're not because of legacy. So, you know, I, I found that the way that I look through all of my old cards has changed because of how legacy has essentially waned. And 
I can't help but appreciate this on a different level because one of the very, very first articles I wrote was legacy's going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, and it's not going to disappear, but it won't be hugely popular. It won't move card prices. You won't find tournaments for it that much. You know, there'll be pockets of people that enjoy it, but it's just not going to be everywhere. And I had a lot of people got very angry and told me I was very wrong. And now here we are. And legacy is, I mean, people play it, right? But like pretty hard. You can't get on the pro tour playing it and you can't make a lot of money winning tournaments with it every year. It's just. You're not going to see it in the no. the new pro league either. I'd be very surprised if those guys end up playing that format at all ever. The And the thing is like as recently as 2014 or 2015, it was a different scene. Modern and Legacy were both very popular and Modern was clearly in an ascendant position, but Legacy was still holding strong. And so the argument could be had about how fast Legacy would fade. But when we were making the statements early on about that legacy's on the way out, we were right. And you're correct to say it's not a 2018 thing. 2018 is more like the capper. You've had a full year of legacy not really having a major impact overall. And I don't think it's ever going to go back in the other direction. So the next question becomes, of course, is, um, you know, what's going to happen with this new format that is rumored? Like, are at what point does modern become the new legacy? Uh, is Ultimate Masters the herald of the last hurrah for Modern? Are they planning on trying to phase it out in the next couple of years? How quickly might that come and what form might that take? How do they create a format that is interesting enough to squeeze into in between Standard and Modern and keep and have a net positive impact mm-hmm. on the Magic economy as a whole? Uh, yeah. It's, 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 it's fascinating how this develops each year yeah i mean part of this is also like wizards signaled this pretty strongly when they leaned on seg to switch a lot of their tour stops from legacy to modern um and when they stopped uh having very many like really minimized the amount of legacy presence on the gp circuit um you know the the signals were strongest and most obvious by the time they had kind of executed on that strategy a couple years back and it you know shows no signs of 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 turning backwards. I'd say the other theme that's worth noting is that this is probably the second moving into two and a half years or so of uh, global arbitrage for magic being a defining characteristic of the best MTG finance. And even though many content creators who aren't really dipping their toes in that water may represent otherwise because they're not doing that, um, I feel very confident in asserting that anyone who's in MTG finance that produces content and doesn't encourage you to explore global opportunities is just wrong. Yeah. I mean, we have both, you really want to talk about what the best specs have been. There's just been arbitrage and from overseas to America. In fact, I would say like a lion's share of my efforts aren't even specking so much as they are just like, Oh, I have an opening on cards in another country that are a third of the price as they are in America. There's no speculation needed. I just buy it over there for 20 bucks and sell it over here for 60. Um, and it's, it's, you know, obviously much slower than seeing an article on TCG player going and buying some of those cards, getting them three days later, the price is spiked and listing them. Like, you know, you can do that within the turnaround of a week. That's not happening. But the, um, 
the con- not only the consistency, but the reliability is so good that it sort of almost invalidates the other efforts. It's like, yeah, I could dick around and buy a hundred copies of this card for a dollar and hope that it pans out. Or I could just go buy soul rings at half price and not have to wonder. Right. So it's, that's a really big venue for anyone that's able to move on. And I respect that it is challenging and risky for, for people who aren't us. Um, you know, you kind of it, it. I think the hard part there is definitely building the relationships with somebody overseas on it. You know, but if if you have it open to you and you're not leveraging it, it's a mistake. And honestly, that's not even that hard to set up. You make a friend, you make a deal where they collect some stuff and occasionally send it to you. Like they're not passing along one by one cards and making it a huge hassle for them every month or two. So like you can't quick flip specs that you need to get in and out of. It doesn't really work that well. But midterm specs where something is hollowing out and appreciating and it's still going to there's still going to be a market for it a few months later. That's where the sweet spot is. It's also much better on mid to high value items than it is on small ones because shipping is so expensive, say in Europe or from Japan um, and or Brazil or whatever. Um, so those are all considerations, but I can tell you that since I started, you know, primarily focusing on my spec purchases on it being at least 50 or 60% from overseas, uh, my returns have nearly doubled from say before I was doing that in the 30 to 40% range per year. Now it's more like 70, 80, 90%. We'll see where it all nets out for this year. Once I like add back in a few expenses that I may not have fully documented in my spreadsheet, but I feel confident I'm going to be above 70% for sure and probably closer to 80 um, ROI for the year. And that is largely a result of those overseas activities. There's a certain confidence that that allows you to go deeper um, more consistently and turn things over faster when you know that the buy list locally is above the price you're paying (laughs) for the card overseas i mean that leads to you getting eight or 12 copies instead of one two three four Mm -hmm. Um, why hold back when you there are you know you cannot lose any situation it's kind of like having a you know the not the logical equivalent but the functional equivalent of having a a straddle or something when you are um, setting up options in the stock market where you're trying to limit your losses while also limiting your upside. The In this situation, you're not limiting your upside. You're just limiting your losses because the buy list is backing your play. Um, and and that is the purest form of arbitrage imaginable. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many more times I can say it. You need to get contacts overseas. You need to be looking at South America. You need to be looking at Europe. You need to look, look at Japan. And if you're not doing that, you're going to have less lesser returns and not make or save as much yeah, money on match for sure um all <laughs> right so let's speed through a list that could have been very lengthy and we've limited to a reasonable number of cards um having gone over our spec calls for the entirety of 2018 i can say that the theme is as follows um in terms of its results Roughly 30, 40, 45% of the time, we tell you to go get something and it more or less stays stable. You don't really make any money. You don't really lose any money, but there's an opportunity cost involved in holding it. So not true failures, but definitely not as exciting as it could have been. However, most of the rest of the time, we have made you guys some serious money. our favorite game. Uh, Made ourselves some serious money along the way. (laughs) Magic the Gathering. 
Um, mostly from focusing on, I think that like really the key and uh, the underlying thesis for most of what we do is focusing on the supply side. Um, if you focus on inventory levels, even if you don't deal in Europe and Japan and whatever, if you can't do the global thing, you don't have the time or the, the motivation. At minimum, refocus your stuff away from trying to have a novel idea, from trying to have a new idea, from being the only one on a spec, which is hard, hardly ever what you want for various reasons, and focus on supply side. Look at high demand cards that are draining and have a steep ladder and keep yourself disciplined on dealing with those things. Buy as few of them as possible so you have less to manage overall and you mm -hmm. are going to see better returns. Uh, yeah, I, I'm in this, you know, I, I've, I noticed the same thing is that I had one card that I found where I actually, that had an actual downturn on it um, where you lost money, uh, which actually I really like the card even more now. But for the most part, the, the worst other than that, essentially one card, the worst that came about was, uh, you, like you said, it just didn't move and uh, it didn't go anywhere, um, which is not ideal. I would like to have made money on those, but at least they didn't plummet. So if you bought them, they just kind of hang out. And, you know, there's worse things that have happened, all things considered. Uh, I think if we can say, well, generally the worst, the worst outcome from listening to us is that it was stagnant. Um, I would consider that a, a, a pretty high floor in terms of success rate, right? Like if that's your worst case scenario, you did pretty well. Um, and then profits were all over the place, depending on what you listen to us on. Uh, you know, a, another large chunk, maybe like another, if, if you figure 40% didn't move, 40% were like, you know, 20%, 30% gains between maybe between 25 and 80%. Uh, they were decent. Um, you know, you probably made money. They, they, you'd be happy with them. And then there's like 10, 15, 20% that are like really good. That's like the Myojin of seen wins that went from $2 to probably 20. Um, or the foil thrun, the last trolls that I talked about in episode 108. So that was like uh, early January or something, mid January. Uh, that I I recommended at twelve dollars, which are now fifty five. So there's stuff like that floating around there too that are real home runs. Yeah, and I think that um, where we went wrong, as we're going to see in some of the the selections we've made to illustrate these points, um, market conditions have bent in ways sometimes around reprints. Um, some sometimes in terms of retraces that are short to midterm and are likely to reverse at some point um, that are not wholly predictable. The best we can do for you guys is to give you is to focus on the supply side because it's very hard for um, low supply cards to fill in in many cases, if especially if they are older or essentially rare or come from a single printing, like something like a judge promo or a mythic edition or whatever. And so I think that focusing on that stuff where the market has no easy method to resupply also ends up working uh, out better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's a point, too, is we don't um, you know, we don't know what Wizards is going to reprint. And we try and warn you guys away from that, too. And I didn't get into that. You know, it's hard to, to pick that out when we look through our show notes, because I know there are cards that I talked about where it's like, well, here's a card that I like, but it might get reprinted. You should weigh that risk against it. Like if it doesn't, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, but I don't see that when I'm looking through all the result, all the data now. Uh, but I'm sure that some of these where we kind of lost ground like that, we can probably go back and listen to the episode and we likely kind of cautioned you against the deck falling out of favor, or if it doesn't take off, it won't make you any money or this could get reprinted in commander and then it does. So I'd like to think there's a fair bit of that out there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I mean, some total we don't expect and to be perfect all the time, but uh, I'm happy to say that having looked over these results, we've done done well by the listeners. Yeah, I don't I don't think you uh, unless you picked exactly the wrong cards to buy every time we talked about it. I think you probably came out pretty well. Yeah. All right. Um, so one of the things we're working on for next year is trying to track all of these specs alongside the rest of. Uh, the listeners in the MGG Prize Pro Trader tools that are getting rebuilt. So we'll talk more about that once we have more details. But for now, let's jump into some humble brags. Um, here's a, I mean, le- legitimately, this was 60 or 70 cards long. So I've trimmed it back to a reasonable number of examples. Um, Life from the Loam, just recently, episode 147, two weeks ago. The box toppers called to go from 60 to 80. Lo and behold, they're currently sitting at 90. That's a 50% return in a very short period of time. One of the other principles that's important to build into your spreadsheets, or at least in your casual notations of your activities in MGG Finance, is that all return periods are not the same. If you get 50% in three months, that is way, way better than 50% in 12 months because you get to roll it over into another spec and replicate that you know, with some degree of variance by whatever your average is. So rolling over 50% four times in a year is a tremendous return, far better than you would ever expect on average in the stock market. 50% a year would be tremendous. 50% four times a year on the same money is just crazy pants. So make sure that you're working that in uh, to your spreadsheet, primarily by tracking number of days held. I use a calculation that that uh, uses uh, days held to calculate annualized returns. So if I'm holding something for a month or a year or four years, I'm equivocating all of that to, and accounting for um, you know, inflation and interest rates if you want to get really technical about it. I remember uh, when I was spending a little more time thinking about Bitcoin each day, doing some math, and I realized that if you improved your, if you had made 2% each day for I think it was 31 days, you had doubled your returns. So this is that sort of like, you know, do you want, would you rather have somebody give you $500,000 or one penny a day doubled every day for 30 days type of thing? Uh, so, you know, 2% gains 30 times over is doubling your funds in, in one month. Um, so 50% four times in a year is a lot. Like that is a lot because if you start with a thousand dollars and you make fifty percent, you go to fifteen hundred, and then fifteen percent is seven fifty to put you to twenty two fifty. Then fifty percent is eleven hundred to thirty three, and then the last one is like another seven hundred fifty. So you end up at like four grand. So fifty percent four times is about a quadruple over the course of a year, I believe. Uh, that's a hell of a return. Now that's a little tricky to do, right? To like. It is difficult to do that reliably, but uh, it does offer some ridiculous returns if you're able to position yourself to do that. Mm-hmm. It's also worth pointing out there's a lot of cards that uh, aren't on the super success story list because they popped at some point, And if you got out at the right moment, you were fine. 
but have since retraced, which is, you know, a common enough phenomenon, especially on cards where the market can be a buy list relatively easily backfill given enough time if the demand profile isn't strong enough. So things like, you know, calling Karn Scion of Urza to get from like 60, 65 to at a certain point, 95, and now it's fallen back way off that. So if you held too long, you can get wrecked on Karn Scion of Urza. But if you picked it up around episode 116 or something, you were doing well. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I didn't manage to catch any of that in my review either. Um, but but that's that's a fair point. All right, let me speed through a bunch of these. Horizon Canopies from uh, Foils from uh, Iconic Masters, I called in episode 144 to go from 60 to 80, currently sitting at 75 and continuing to drain. That's, a, again, a 25% return in a very short period of time. Ultimate Masters boxes, I was way out in front saying that this was going to be the best ultimate, best master set of all time, um, mostly because I have all this, you know, back alley knowledge about back to basics and whatever so i you know clearly had the uh, illegitimate ins and sure enough 225 dollars boxes that are i said sell target of about 350 current market price after all the recent coupons is sitting at 300 um so unless there is a restock forthcoming whether you keep those boxes sealed or crack them um given that box toppers are averaging about 80 or 90 dollars per box topper Though there is still some variance traps to walk into there, um, it's likely that the majority of you have been pretty happy with your early Ultimate Masters purchases. Yeah, those things were ridiculous. I, I didn't manage to bother. I didn't manage to didn't bother to get into any of them. Um, I just didn't want to go through the work with splitting them and dealing with all the comments and whatnot. But uh, they were definitely valuable if you made the time and effort put the time and effort into them. So. Congratulations. I mean, if I if if I had just held my nine hundred dollar case, I could probably flip it this week for twelve hundred relatively. Yeah, so I don't doubt it. Minus fees and minus fees and whatever. However, I chose to open it and did even better. I think my average was was in the high three hundreds or something um, for the six boxes I opened. So uh, and that was without having any like really crazy box toppers. I only did like medium OK on box toppers, but just you get these runs of mythics in that set that are unprecedentedly good. If you can get two of the top five, like a Karn and a Liliana or a Snapcaster and a Cavern, it's not hard for the rest of the box to go in your favor. And that, and this is with like a lot of the commons and the commons in the set and some of the rares being pretty severely depressed given the glut of inventory that is in the market right now. Give that a year or two to recover. And I suspect you're going to see a recovery uh, flow that's very similar to Eternal Masters, but even stronger given the uh, preponderance of modern playable staples as opposed to eternal playable staples in this set. Oh, yeah. I fully expect um, these to rebound real hard uh, down the road for sure. Um, so somebody asked me like questions about like they wanted to buy a cabin or something from me that I that they saw in a picture I posted from a box. I'm not selling anything from the set for six months. Um, I'm waiting for the rebound play with some of the cards for the time being the only thing I, I would be looking to sell is something that i think is propped up by a short-term buyout like if somebody goes after a medium demand box topper or something and hollows out the inventory down to near nothing then i might sell into that hype just because i would expect a retrace since we've seen that kind of 
action in the market on masterpieces and so forth before if the speculators get out ahead of the natural demand profile then you probably want to sell into it wait till it retraces buy in again and keep rolling well yeah especially because you know if you manage to find yourself in one of those situations the uh hollowing out and the price that it temporary price peak that it settles at could end up being just as good as what it will mature to six to nine months later anyways yeah uh, th- moving on, Thing in the Ice and Bedlam Reveler Foils both were called out on episode 141, like eight weeks ago, uh, from Innistrad block foils that just needed to get there in modern, which they have. Um, Thing in the Ice foils I was in as early as $10 foils. I called it at 15 to get to 30 Currently it's sitting around 26 and the supply is getting lower and lower. Bedlam Revelers, I call it at around 10 to 12 to get to 25 plus, And it's currently only sitting at 16, but the supply is very low. So it's very close to a tipping point over 20. Um, both are, are likely to produce 50 to 70% returns for you if you got in when, when we told you to. Um, Sensei's Divining Top, uh, Eternal Master Foils, called them on episode 140 to go from 40 to 60, currently sitting at 60 for that sweet 50% return in less than three months. Um, and they are still even cheaper overseas. In fact, I just restocked on some this morning in Europe, and they are guaranteed moneymakers. Um, Mythic Edition, uh, I was all in on that, pushed a whole bunch of chips uh, in on Mythic Edition, ended up buying almost 20 boxes total Ooh. at an average in of about 305, something like that, 305, 310, um, and sold, played a little... One of the sexiest things I think I did all year um, in MTG Finance was borrowing boxes from people at 25 bucks a pop so I could sell them into the hype cycle at 600 and then returning them the boxes later. Um, that worked out very well indeed uh, because boxes are still at 500, but they're not at 600 and they might get to 600 later in the year. But doing this in this particular manner, let me... Um, leverage the amount of capital that I had in play and get a lot of churn going in a very short period of time. I mean, this was a double up on a few thousand bucks. Uh, and I've still got, I think, five boxes unsold out of all of that. Um, two I've got to return to you. One I had to I had to return to a listener, which I did last week. Um, and a few others had already been returned to my father and a couple of other people. And uh, that whole process worked out very, very well indeed. And I'm hoping that we get a chance to repeat it Um Preferably with a fixed distribution model, so that everybody has a fair shot at them. So you're uh, you're cutting me in for fifty percent of the profits on the two I lent you, right? <laughs> if that was the deal, but <laughs> I don't think it was. Sadly, I have you. a piece of paper here with that written on it. But I didn't say the, you wrote it. But <laughs> the, the the beauty of that was that the people that um, you know, including yourself, that got the twenty five bucks, got a twenty five dollar discount on their boxes with, you know, no hassle other than dropping something in the mail. You didn't give me twenty five dollars. Um, which is pretty solid. I got nothing. I got nothing for this. That's not true. Pretty sure I already sent you that money. If I didn't, I certainly will. I don't rem- I honestly don't remember. I'm just teasing you. Um Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure if you check your PayPal I've already sent it to you. Yeah, you might have. The, yeah. So I mean that's it's because the thing is that like my dad was a, was a typical example of, and very similar to the listeners that I talked to that, that got in on this with me, he was just going to sit on his box. Like I returned it to him and he still didn't open it. So <laughs> it was just, it was either sit in the closet uh, for ever doing nothing or 
lend it to me. I'll give it back to you. And here's an extra 25 to make it even cheaper. And he was one of the lucky people that got a box topper in the mail. And it was a good one. I think he got through the breach. Um, so he got a hundred bucks off his mythic edition box. <laughs> so, and, and he, he had bought that on the website, right? So he got his box for like uh, just over a hundred or something. And it's worth five now. I mean, hard to argue with that. Yeah, that worked out very well for him, for for most people involved, right? Like anyone who managed to pay money out. Yeah, and and really the other people involved as well. So moving on down the list, Elspeth Knight Errant out of that set. I called at 32 when it was posted at a scandalously low price early on in the reveal period. This was early October. Um, Sell target of 50. Lo and behold, it's already at 65 for the sweet 100% return in less than three months. Um, it's in 9,000 EDH decks. The art uh, with Elspeth sitting in the Theros underworld with the mask that she has to wear down there, uh, I picked out as being especially uh, likely to uh, be of interest to people for cubes and you know casual play, EDH play, etc. And sure enough, that card has has popped pretty quickly. Um, similarly, the Nationals version of Flooded Strand, the Flooded Strand promos were dirt cheap overseas, and you could get them as low as $40 if you source them from Europe. It was never really that cheap in North America, but I called it to go from 40 to 80 uh, solidly. If you called it as an arbitrage play, not to get to 80 but that you could pick them up in Europe as low as 40 and sell them for 80 Currently, the, the market price on them is $70. There are still copies available in Europe to make money on. Um, and that was from episode 135. Um, similarly, on the same topic of premium magic products, the San Diego Comic-Con Planeswalker sets, we picked up a whole ton of those at Fan Expo here in Toronto in at around $100 US and then sold them into Europe for $300 plus because they got zero supply. And so all you really needed was 50 or 100 people willing to pay a premium on it. And sure enough, they exist. Um, and I've still got, I think one or two copies or something sitting with one of my partners overseas that still have yet to sell, but um, I can easily send those in to buy list overseas or break them up um, if they don't move uh, super quickly. Um, not likely to be an issue. Um, yet another example of why cross-border sell-through is important. Um, and I don't know, did you did you pick one of these up on the online sale to the Hasbro store this year? You know, as you're talking about it, I'm looking over at my shelf and I'm trying to remember if, what I ended up with. Uh, there's been so many of these products this year. I can't keep track of all of them. So I I think I got one, but I genuinely do not remember at this point if I did or not. Yeah, I mean, for anybody that that has the resources... I do not recommend ignoring these products in the future. They have been roundly successful for from all angles if you were trying to make money on them or get value for your collection. Um, so oh, one yeah. of the few standard yeah. specs of for the sure. year, something I very rarely call these days, Teferi Hero of Dominaria called on episode 133 to go from 40 to 60, currently sitting at in and around $47, which would only give you about a 10% return after fees and so forth. Um, also called the foils uh, at $100 to almost certainly double within the next couple of years on the back of modern cube EDH play. Um, that is still a strong call, I think. And um, I wouldn't, you know, Teferi rotates in the fall, right? Dominaria ro- rotates this fall? Uh, boy, is that I already? So. Yeah, that sounds right. 
Teferi rotates in the fall. So I don't think you want to get caught flat-footed holding non-foil copies of Teferi. At this point, you probably just want to go ahead and out them. Um, trading straight across with at your local gaming table is probably your best bet um, at this point. But you, there have been a couple of different spikes along the way for Teferi, and hopefully you manage to get out during one of them for max trade value at the very least. Um, trade credit trade in on the the mythic edition version of Teferi is at one fifty at Card Kingdom. I I'm going to pause you for a second. Teferi was in Dominaria, yeah. right? Dominaria was this was this April, so he rotates I next don't think so. fall. I mean, unless they change the rotation schedule, but it's still on two years, right? No, but not not if not spring sets. Years. Spring sets always get less. It's two years for a fall set. Yeah, but eight, which and it's eighteen months for a spring but, set. But it was released in Dominaria was released yeah. in April. Yeah, of so that is eighteen months. That is eighteen months. Year. He gets last spring to this it's, spring. You said this fall. Yeah, last spring to this spring, and then this coming fall. Oh, you're saying fall 2019? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. that's correct. I'm, I'm thinking you're talking about fall of 2018. No, I mean that's which behind I us. Get was behind us. Yeah. All right, so you cut that out. I'm going to edit this part of the cast out. <laughs> yeah, no problem. All right, moving right along, we have decimate foils out of uh, conspiracy. I call it to go from five to fifteen. They're currently sitting at ten dollars, and supply continues to drain. That's a nice hundred percent double up with further upside likely to lock in not a kind of card that a lot of people would be talking about but it's in 8400 edh decks and because it they're in a a game of any reasonable size you are likely to have all four targets you need to cast the spell it does a lot of work uh at the tables where it's brought it to play yeah i really like this card i remember picking up on this back uh when i first started playing edh i'm like this does everything Another one of these kind of forgotten cards that would probably throw most Euro dealers for a loop is Villainous Wealth Foils from KTK, card nobody was playing at the time, um, were available when I called them around episode 132 uh, for about $354, called them to get to 10 They're currently sitting at 7 but sl- supply is hollowing out um, even further. And if you have any intention of owning one, you should probably stag it now. Um, it's already been good for roughly a double up, but I think you hang out, hang on to it another six to 12 months and you'll be able to get out uh, to buy lists in significant fashion. Um, likewise, more of a modern pick, Hangerback Walker Foils from Origins. I called to go from 10 to 20, um, and they more or less got their dead on the button. Um, basically on the back of seeing a significant amount of play in the Hardened Affinity deck, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Recruiter of the Guard, uh, foils from Conspiracy 2, uh, sorry, cons- non-foils from Conspiracy 2 of Recruiter of the Guard, called to get from 15 to 30, currently sitting at 19 um, for about a 25% gain, um, but again, uh, hollowing out, and I would expect to see further gains in 2019. Mana Crypt from Eternal Masters called the foils at 150 to get to 200. They're currently sitting at 195. This actually might still represent an opportunity because just overnight Mana Crypt spiked, uh, non-foil spiked to about 180. Um, the Japanese copy I had on eBay sold around, oh, this will really irk you. Uh, guy sent in a um, offer at around 110 or something, which I rejected and uh countered 
at like $5 below my ask of about 140. So maybe like 135 or something. And then after the, I had already submitted the offer and they had not rejected it, the card spiked. So as of this morning, it's probably worth about 40 bucks more. Mm. Um, but I had to accept the offer. And once they saw the spike, they accepted it. <laughs> so good on them, I guess. But uh, foils and non-foils are now essentially the same price. So you can get uh, foil EMA Mana Crypt still this morning. There's a few copies left on, on TCG Player for about 180 to 190 I'm sure you can find some overseas for even cheaper. And I mean, no brainer, right? If you can get the foil version, you might as well. Yeah. Yeah, uh, especially on a card like Monocrypt, which is mostly going to be desired by EDH players and cube players who want foils anyways, for sure. Yeah. So last one on my Humble Brags list, JSS City of Brass from episode 121. Um, called it to go from 90 to 140. Current price on that card is, give me one second. There is one copy listed on TCG Player at $340. <laughs> that's pretty good so let's let's call that 250 <laughs> or something for a gain of 175 percent or something um bottom line is if you got in on the jss cities of brass um which travis i remember quite clearly said was silly because nobody should be playing the card in edh um i stand by that which statement I think you're probably re- People haven't bought the card. Make <laughs> you're not, it a you're good not, card. You're not wrong. I mean, there, there, there are so many ways to fix your mana in EDH for most color combinations that a uh, straight up pain land that hits you, pings you every time, uh, is not always where you want to be. But that notwithstanding, um, some of these old promo foils are increasingly hard to come by, and City of Brass is a pretty iconic card and the history of magic that shows up in various formats, including EDH. So hopefully it made you some money. I know the copies that I sourced overseas are, are looking like doubles, triples, maybe quadruples. God, those JSS ones are so ugly too. Have you seen one before? They're dark. I don't the mind foiling them. foiling process especially. Kind of depends what sleeves you're playing. Well, it's got... Kind of depends what what sleeving you're putting yeah, in. Yeah, it's they've got that weird like firework like starburst effect oh they're brutal they're brutal uh all right all right so now (laughs) having well these are yeah i mean i have a couple of more to make fun of myself (laughs) or at least outlines of scenarios where things did not go quite as as give the people what they came for james um yeah it's it's fun to see where we went wrong underground c uh episode 121 was was going through a major hype spike there was a big push on reserve list cards throughout the first half of the year that has since retraced some um at a certain point people were really like trying to push up the prices of uh revised duels quite high the thing is arabian nights or antiquities there is a lot more revised out there and dealers have been gathering and sitting on duels for years like typical dealer activity has been to have too much too many duels in stock for quite some time and as legacy play has faded where it's not that there aren't people playing it it's just that most of them own their decks already and Mm -hmm. so they don't generate as much demand for duels at if modern had let's put it this way if modern had never existed and legacy was the primary uh eternal ish format with non-rotating cards 
um, you know, duels might be holding really high price tags. Um, and they still have shown very significant appreciation over the last four or five years looking looked at on the long time horizon. At the time when when Underground Sea was clocking at around 600, I said um, it could get to nine. Current price is only 500. So if you bought 600 when I told you to, um, you'd be down 17%. Long term, you're probably still doing just fine. Um, but I, I picked this one out because my comment was just like too exuberant. It said, amazingly, this card could top $1,000 within the year. <laughs> Which, I, you know, I don't think that was... It, it, at the time, it didn't feel wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't really call you out on any of your picks this year, so I don't have a lot of room to harass you on them. <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, the thing with the duels, underground, volcanic, etc., um, are were particularly important and worth more because of legacy. It's important to recognize that a lot of the as legacy has waned, EDH has ascended. And in EDH, the duels are roughly equivalent in usage. Um, and you can have the argument that if anything, the duels that share green as one of the two colors are less necessary because green has so many fixing options. Um, whereas something like, for instance, Morphic Pool is probably the most expensive foil from Battle Bond because that blue-black is a color combination that doesn't fix as easily. Um, so... On that basis, um, Underground Sea still looks well positioned from an EDH perspective, but something like may not be as much so, may may not have as much to gain as some of the other duels. So it's worth looking at duels from a longer term perspective from the lens of EDH as opposed to from Legacy. A um, couple other uh, losers here. I called Academy Rector during the same uh, period of like reserveless craze to go from it had spiked to $80, called it to get to $120 for a 50% gain. And instead, it has retraced back to $55 for a 30% loss. Uh, still in 6,000 EDH decks. Um, looks like copies came uh, out of the woodwork, out of binders and so forth to assist the reefs and, and backfill the inventory. Um, so... Uh, remains to be seen what this reserve list card will do in terms of price a year or two years from now. Certainly not something I would be looking to sell at current prices. I think definite hold. Yeah, and I think Academy Rector, like everything else, is it's all sort of the same general sense that like we may have missed on them because they didn't hit sort of within our timetable, but that doesn't mean that they're bad specs. And like I think that Academy Rector is still fine to hold on to. Like that seems still seems well positioned, right? But more to the point, I might just buy some Academy Rectors at fifty five. Yeah. So because we've already seen we've already seen it hit eighty. On if the time frame is a year to two years to get back to there uh, from fifty five, that would be a totally reasonable spec. Mm-hmm. Not not an optimal one, but reasonable. Um, further Death Shadow foils is something I called out a couple of times. I picked this one out um, not because it's such a big failure, but because I have continued to be surprised that the Modern Masters 2017 foils of Death Shadow have not managed to get there. Um, Death Shadow is not as important a deck in Modern right now as it was, say, 18 months ago, but it has still top aided and, and won tournaments in recent memory in the last couple of months. And so my call for the foils to get from 15 to 25, though relatively modest, has not really taken place. You can still get foil copies of Death Shadow at $13, which is a a slight loss, if anything, or an opportunity to buy in now if you think that 
um, it's not going to be a priority reprint for another couple of years. Yeah. And I mean, at this point, I wouldn't expect it to be right. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. Um, so the last one I wanted to call myself out on was Caracas. Uh, Judge Foyles, I called on episode 131 to go from 75 to 120. Instead, today, the price on those is $60 because it got both a box topper and a foil reprint in its Ultimate Masters. So, you know, reprint risk is occasionally real. Yeah, I mean, what are you going to do, right? Like, there's nothing... We have to hedge our bets when with those types of comments, but it happens. At at some point, if you haven't been, if you haven't been blown out by a reprint at some point, and you th- consider yourself actively involved in MGG finance, you are either savant level, <laughs> flying under the radar and not generating content, or you're not actually yeah. in the game. They happen, and as much as we try and dodge them. Uh, I've stopped trying to predict what wizards will do because they make me look dumb every time I do it. So it's not even worth it anymore. Yeah. So there, there was another 50 or 60 great calls that I could have listed here that worked out modestly well to very well. Um, I will consider trying to put, put the time in to accumulate all of our uh, data and sharing it with the pro traders in the near future. So I will put that on my to-do list. Ooh, it's going to be quite a project. Eh, we're, we're halfway there with this list. <laughs> um, so I guess that means it's my turn to share, right? Do it. All right. So mine is uh, a little less expansive, uh, hopefully a little less back patty. <laughs> um, so like I said earlier, my my best of the uh, of the year was probably that Miojin of of um, of seeing wins. Not a not a exciting or thrilling card, but I think kind of sets the tone uh, for where you did, where you could have done well this year was just grab the stuff that was in low supply, the, um, that, you know, not a lot of low supply foils that people were interested in. Um, and then just wait a little bit for that to, to turn around. Uh, it did really well for me on most of my specs this year. I mean, that's where a lot of them were. Uh, and they're not as exciting as buying like a $200 card and it jumps to, you know, 300, whatever, but they just, they just work for the most part. Um, and the biggest fail, biggest problem with them is they don't sell terribly fast, uh, because they're, you know, not that many people need foil Myojin of scene wins. Um, but they'll still, they'll still get you returns. Uh, and, and, you know, as long as you buy a couple here and a couple there of everything, uh, you've always got something probably moving. Uh, and that will work out for you in the long term. Um, so not only do I have, I have, like I said, a Demiogen, uh, I had Thrun uh, back on episode 108. So early this year, uh, start, he started at 12. Um, I was thinking 25 for double up there, 55 now. Uh, let's see, Gleeful Sabotage was really low out of Shadows of Innistrad. They were 105, or uh, episode 105, so also early. Um, I recommended those at 10 bucks. Uh, and those are now up to 12. So that's a nice 200% profit. Um, Popper did reasonably well in a couple spots this year. And that was just a matter of paying attention. I, to be perfectly honest, I don't even remember the card. Um, it's, it's the two mana sorcery conspire for destroy target artifact or enchantment. To be honestly, I don't remember how I picked up on this. Like, I don't know <laughs> what I saw that made me go back and like put this on the cast. Maybe the non foils spiked and I went and looked at the foils and saw they were four bucks. And I'm like, oh, 
if this is good, I guess we should buy the foils. But that worked out well. Uh, Bringer the Black Dawn um, foils uh, also or a little little later than this. This is in the spring episode one seventeen. Uh, foils were seven. Uh, I said they would go to twenty. They are currently twenty, so that's just under two hundred percent gain. This is another card that's very much like Myogenes Scene Winds. It was a low supply foil EDH card uh, that people just kind of had forgotten existed. And I said, hey, you you know we should probably grab a couple of these, and now you're selling them for more than a double up. So uh, very accessible uh, specs, I would like to think. Um, Following that, uh, Omnath, Locus of Rage. This has been extraordinarily popular in EDH almost to an extent that I, I never would have expected. Um, and still I'm a little bamboozled by. Uh, but f- uh, this is early this year, episode 107, foils that are on $5. Uh, they're, I said they'd go to 15 Right now they're about $12. Um, still the, you know, the seventh or eighth most popular general in EDH, uh, kind of shockingly. Um, so that's, that's done pretty well. If you grab those guys, uh, I liked snapcaster mages foils went 65 to 110. So that was not a huge percentage gain, only about 75%, but you were making 50, $45 a copy on the foil snapcaster. So that, uh, those, sorry, those were non-foils, non-foil snapcasters. Those worked out pretty well. Um, judge soul rings. I remember James and I had talked about 150 to 250, so even that's only a 66% gain, that's still $100 a copy. So that was good, right? Um, foil Judge Soul Rings. That was based on looking at the the in, Invention Soul Rings, which were were way higher. It's like, well, even though the Judge ones overall aren't as cool, people are still going to be drawn to them as the original art. So it went that way. Really, the only card that I think went poorly this year uh, was Diabolic Intent out of battle bond i recommended foils at 20 hoping they would get to 40 and they're now 12 so those have uh regressed a little bit and i think a lot of the battle bond stuff i think lost either either lost ground or kind of held steady we didn't see the returns on battle bond yet that we would have liked to which is a little surprising to me given what the original conspiracy behaved like, but I still really like most of the battle bond targets just because it's going to be rare that we see any of those cards get reprinted, um, especially in foil. So I, I $12 diabolic intense foil diabolic intense. seems like a great pickup to me. Yeah. Um, I, I have a theory about battle bond. It what's that fell out. It, it doesn't, because it's not associated with a specific format that, gets heavily dealt with by streamers and deck clinic content providers, you know, Corbin's mining modern series and Seth stuff. Um, unless it shows up in uh, one of like Saffron's wacky brew days or whatever, a lot of these cards are just off the radar and EDH players are notorious for taking six months to a year or even more to start uh, uh, normalizing usage of cards that, were not already known quantities. And mm-hmm. while, you know, if a show like Command Zone calls out a card repeatedly, it's going to move some copies um, for sure. But I, I think a lot of like the Battle Bond foil duels, for instance, have kind of stalled out. Like they're pretty much sitting where they were six months from now. And I've got some of those sitting in the, not the box of shame, but the uh, the holding pen. Um, and I've been timid about grabbing up additionals because it's, while I can envision a future where they get from, say, 30, 35 to 70, 
I can also see a future where they just stall out at 30 to 35 and stay there for a while just because they're not 100% on people's radar despite uh, reported play patterns on EDH rec. Yeah, which which might be what it is, is that it's really actually only been six months or so. And if you have cards like this, they do take time to filter through players' decks, especially if nobody's writing about it. Here, my dog is very angry about this right now. Um, <laughs> and they, they do take time to propagate through decks, and I am still sort of a mix of surprised and angry that Martin Stromgald is not in more commander decks because that card is absurd, but nobody ever bothers to read it. Nobody writes about it, so it doesn't make any um, moves. But which I think is a valuable lesson here is that we need to keep in mind that no matter how good we think the card should be, how how useful we think it should be, uh, we aren't market influencers, no matter how much we shout into the void that you know that card is really good. So just keep in mind that uh, our opinion that a card should be good or worth more doesn't mean that it will be yeah and you definitely don't want to be in the camp i see this there's always an undercurrent in community uh, discussion around mtg finance of someone repeatedly calling out a pick that they are clearly holding a lot of and you don't Mm -hmm. want to be that guy or girl you don't want to end up in the boat where you feel like you've got to champion the card you want to be leaning into trends that are already existent. Um, not only is it arguably ethically more sound, um, but it's going to be more successful. You, you don't want to have to create trends. It is always more effort and going to be less successful than simply going which way the wind is already blowing. Um, mm-hmm. Doubling back on Omnath for a second, I bought copies, according to this, I bought foil copies in Europe at like 14. So there must have been a spike at some point that I was leaning into it, which has now retraced. The, the biggest thing holding you back there is that Channel Fireball has 50 foils listed at 1199 on TCG Player. Going to be kind of hard to dismantle that ladder. If they would just get out of the way, the rest of those would probably dry up pretty quickly. There's only another six or seven copies beyond them below 20. Yeah. Sounds like they snapped him. Sounds like they snapped him up in a Euro deal for four dollars a piece. Yeah, that's probably what happened. <laughs> Seems to <clears throat> the one thing I, I, I never really understand though is why anybody ever lists more than a couple of play sets of something on on various platforms. I, I would be I would be willing to bet that if you run a study on people's willingness to purchase in the face of overwhelming inventory versus uh implied scarcity you will do significantly better with implied scarcity. And I get that with something like a standard, like say something with like, uh, if you have 50 copies of Invasion Absorb, you probably just want to post them all, you know, during that announcement period, because otherwise you're just going to miss out on sales. But on something that's naturally is going to sell a little slower, dude, just put up 10, 12 copies and see how that goes. Or put, put 10 or 12 copies up in various platforms spread out <laughs> across the globe i never get it when people are like people will post their like spec picture on ebay where they picked something up at three dollars and they can sell it for 20 or whatever and those instead of just showing you a playset in their ebay photo they'll show you 60 copies no one wants to mm-hmm. buy from that guy yeah i know i completely agree that's dumb as hell and i also wonder why people do that because it is just asking like you, you don't want to broadcast that right like it's not that you're trying to hide the information but you make people more people are like oh well i guess it's not actually that rare i don't need to worry about her or anything you, you, you've got 
you you have to lean like lean into the the concern that it's going to spike well that you need to recognize that emotion is a big part of purchasing behavior that utility is never hard and fast people can be convinced something is worth ten dollars and then when it hits 20 demonstrate outrage not because there's anything logical about that outrage but because people in general tend to only be comfortable with what has been and have difficulty with change and no one wants to feel like you're winning over on them they want to feel like they're buying from a at at best at, at worst neutral entity and at best you know a best friend that's helping them get the thing they want People love, even if the deal is only 5 or 10% off, you should be offering those deals on a regular basis, especially if you're selling on social media, because A, it will make you the best price in the market. You're going to sell more stuff. B, it sets people up to be in a positive frame of mind. Like, I always try to offer a discount because of all of the aforementioned reasons. And it, the number of thank yous and wow, that was a great thing, experience, and they come back and buy something else is the kind of thing where like uh, DJ... Uh, Douglas Johnson, you know, made his whole initial career uh, on a college campus, buying and selling cards, as I understand it, to a local market where there was no other vendor available. And just being the go-to guy Mm -hmm. can can stake your Mm -hmm. whole claim. I I completely agree. And it's 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 about it's about perception, right? Like it's uh, I am, you know, think about the way we talk about our specs. We go and we go, there's low supply on this. We should we should consider picking it up because there's not a lot out there. Now, somebody could have 70 of those cards, but if they're only putting three on TCG player, I don't know that. So I'm like, oh, this seems like there's, okay, let's make a move on this. And then you just can kind of slowly keep feeding the market. So it never empties out, but yours is only one of the only ones on available. Um, I mean, I have several cards that I have stacks of that I only ever put more than two or three on TCG player of at a time because I don't want to give the impression like, oh, he's got 60 of them. So, um, yeah, I I mean, if you're channel fireball, I guess the volume of sales is how high that you don't care. Right. Like that's much less of an issue for them and the effort with trying to keep track of your public inventory and your hidden inventory and then updating the public one. When it hits zero with the true inventory is probably more work than it's worth. Uh, so I respect that. But you shouldn't do it. You, the person listening to this cast, shouldn't deal. Should put in the effort to disguise that. The thing is that if you see 50 copies of something, you are much more likely. It's much more likely that the next person in will undercut the price. Because if there's only one copy at 15 and you want to get 18, you might just list at 18 and wait for the 15 to sell. But if there's 50 at 15, you know you're going to be waiting forever to sell your copy at 18. So you're going to sell at 14.99, and that's going to that's yeah, going to kick that's time. going to kick off the race to the bottom. Um, a little tip yeah. I just noticed on TCG Player that I've never noticed before: when vendors are selling the same thing at the same price, um, it's alphabetical. So your TCG Player account should be an A-based name, which is the same advice that's been was true in the days of the yellow pages triple <laughs> hmm. a movers yeah you should be triple a cards because that means you're at the top of the list and i guarantee that will lead to a single digit increase in percentage of sales well my store name begins with a w so that's great for me yeah you should maybe rethink that i just but, price yeah. everything a penny lower and do it that way yeah all right so in summary i think we did pretty well by the listeners this year um and look forward to doing 
similarly well uh, for everybody in the coming year. Um, some wins, some misses, more wins than misses, thankfully. Uh, and some, you know, very strong conditions for uh, good MTG Finance heading into 2019 pending economic downturn. Um, I think that's probably something we should just quickly touch on is that stock markets had one of the worst months in many years. Um, the a variety of bad decisions <laughs> at the federal level uh, of government in the United States of America has uh, and uh, a bunch of, in fairness, global market conditions that were headed in this direction anyway, um, ha- is setting up for a dubious uh set of economic conditions for 2019 worth noting for the listeners sake that this could impact uh mtg finance from the macro level if you are heavily invested in expensive magic items and those get impacted by uh worsening household disposable income in the face of a severe economic downturn um that would be something you would want to be thinking about and understand what your potential outs would be and how you might want to divest. On the flip side of that, it's worth noting that in the last economic crisis almost a decade ago, Magic uh, came out the back half of that with one of the strongest growth patterns we've ever seen There is, in the game. Um, there is a phenomenon that is most commonly associated with movie tickets, for instance. Um, movies are probably one of the... In, you know, buckets of popcorn at the movie theater are probably one of the most overpriced, highest margin items in the services market of North America. Um, but they do exceedingly well in recessions because one of the things that happens when household income overall um, is strained is that families take less $6,000 vacations to Disney World, but they still want to be entertained. So they tend to bite off smaller impulse purchase level the disposable things. So they spend more on a six pack of beer. They spend, they buy six packs of beer more. They go to the movies more. They might play more magic. So it's not entirely clear that a general economic downturn would actually be bad for the game. But I would question, you know, what the impact might be on $50,000 lotuses, for instance. Sure. That seems to be the market that would be most squeezed by it. Um, I also kind of wonder you know, on those macro trends, how much impact that has on the general magic buying segment, because they're the people who are buying lots of magic cards type of people who are heavily impacted directly by shifts in the macroeconomic sure, like climate. A, a guy like my dad, who's a power collector that is a doctor, makes good money, isn't going to lose his job in this downturn almost no matter what happens unless we go full Mad Max. Um, yeah. I mean, is he going to stop buying reserve list cards? No. Yeah, and, and beyond that, like think about the average player out there who's buying the types of cards that we're looking at are, you know, are they in positions to be heavily impacted by a downturn in the greater economic trends? I, 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 I'm verging on getting political, so I will stop there. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> the, I mean, one, one trend I noticed, I saw an interesting graph last week that's worth pointing out. Um, in the last economic crisis, it was uh, mortgage debt that was soaring. Currently, it's student debt that's soaring. Mortgage debt is also rising, um, but student debt is up some tremendous amount versus where it was 10 years ago. 
um, more and more graduating students are being saddled with large amounts of debt that they can't service because the entry points into successful career paths are becoming fewer and further between. Um, so one of the questions I have is whether the kind of intermediate F&M level players, whether that scene gets squeezed by those dynamics, economic dynamics, you know, in the same way that they're blaming millennials um, improperly for killing X, Y, and Z various cereals and tuna and whatever else, like all of these products that are struggling with the new uh, market dynamics. I question whether the kind of player that spends 20 to 50 to hundred dollars a month on magic um, is the segment that might be the most severely impacted as the uh, broader trends related to student debt and household income versus inflation and so forth play out. Uh, that's a good question. I, I wonder if the people who are saddled with the debt just <laughs> so much that they just don't care. Uh, but yeah, I, James, you don't want me to yell about politics on this podcast. I guarantee it. Uh, where can our <laughs> listeners find you? Uh, I do have one, one final point. Um, if you believe the stock market is headed into dire straits, um, and stock market returns are significantly worse than MGG finance returns, if you know what you're doing, um, you might want to consider doing what I'm doing, which is I'm taking a chunk, nothing, no, no big deal, but I am shifting some funds that were in the low yield, almost cash-like portion of my portfolio that was not necessarily tax protected. We have up here, uh, I won't even get into the details, but in Canada, it's a little different than the States. But bottom line is, um, it's relatively easy for me to shift some money out of one of my portfolios and into MGG Finance. And if you're doing well with MGG Finance and you wish you were doing more of it, maybe you want to consider um, what your options are mm -hmm. as events unfold. Okay. <clears throat> it's a strain for me here. All right. Where, where can our listeners find you, James? Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at MGG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MGGPrice.com. And I am haunting the uh, MGG Price Pro Trader Discord server um, pretty frequently. And we've got lots of great discussions going on in there. Uh, we've gone from zero to 60 in a hurry. Pretty happy with that rollout, replacing our relatively uh, dead forums. Um, good to have some new life uh uh, and ability for our pro traders to connect with one another. So if you are a frequent listener, maybe consider becoming a pro trader so that you can get the additional benefits of that discord. And if you are already a pro trader, um, maybe consider uh, reaching out to one of us and getting your discord invite link. You just keep in mind that it's a double-edged sword. So it, you know, you get to interact with James and I, but you have to interact with Jason. So uh, <laughs> just keep that in mind. In the grand scheme of things on that Discord, I think Jason's probably still one of the kinder folks available. <laughs> I, uh, I'm i Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter, WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday on MTG Price doing the Watchtower series. Um, I'm here in the Discord, technically. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools, as well as a Discord channel that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 149 and also the end of 
year three and 2018. Uh, I will see you in like, I don't know, a week-ish yep. probably uh, for the new year, year, not quite year four. We're actually a couple weeks short of the technical new year for our cast, but all sorts of fun stuff on the horizon, James. And uh, I will see you next week to kick it all off. Thank you, Travis. And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MGG Fast Finance, where we will talk about our resolutions for better MTG finance in 2019.